By now, you've probably seen ads about the water contamination at Camp Lejeune everywhere. People who got sick after drinking that toxic water are now able to seek repayment for their medical costs because of a new law, the PACT Act. What those other ads don't tell you is that because the PACT Act is a fresh law, it's important to find an attorney who understands the new claims forms. There is a limited time to file your Camp Lejeune claim, so you need a lawyer who can get it right the first time. The experienced team of attorneys at SickMarine.com is ready to file your claim. They will fight for you and they won't take no for an answer. Sign up at SickMarine.com. Looking at the downfall of Sears and Kmart from the inside. This is episode 103 of Church in Maine. Welcome to Church in Maine. This is the podcast, a religion and public affairs podcast, where we are at the intersection of faith and 21st century life. My name is Dennis Sanders, and I'm your host. Well, welcome to this new episode. And we're revisiting kind of an old subject. If you have been following this podcast over the last year or so, you know that I have done a lot both written and in the podcast about uh, the fall of Sears and Kmart. Um, and this time around, I wanted to talk to someone who actually saw some of what was happening on the inside. And so today's guest is Mark Cohen. He is currently um, the director of retail studies at Columbia University. Um, he is actually a graduate of uh, Columbia um, with a, a receiving an MBA in 1971. And um, in that time, he has had um, at least over 20 years of experience um, in retail, um, especially he was president of Softlines at Sears and Roebuck, and then um, became the chairman CEO of Sears Canada. Um, it was in those positions that he saw some of the, the missteps that happened um, and also what started to happen under um, the um, leadership of Eddie Lampert, who is the current CEO of Sears. He um, merged Kmart and Sears in 2005. And so this is a unique way of looking at the company from the inside of what was going on, um, what led us to this point. Um, as Cohen likes to say, this is not a happy interview, um, but it's probably an interview that we need, all need to listen to. So um, it starts a little kind of, um, I guess, ragged because we kind of just launched right into the interview. So um, just just so that you are aware of that. And um but I hope that this will be an interview that you will uh, give a good listen to. So without further ado, let's listen to Mark Cohen.
I was a Sputnik kid in the 50s, lots of math and science. Uh, went to Columbia Engineering as an undergraduate. Um, graduated with a bachelor's in electrical engineering in 1969. There was an uh, industrial recession that was emerging. And so I jumped into business school, which you could do back in those days without having to go to work for a few years. Um, and so I, I, I jumped into the Columbia Business School. I broke the two-year MBA program up with an overseas gig uh, working as an engineer in the Congo. But in 1971, in October, I got my MBA and was planning on, uh, was hoping to work for the Grumman's or the IBM's or companies of that ilk. Uh, had started to interview and um, they were all hiring for the beginning of the following year. Mm-hmm. Here it was October. Um, as a favor to a classmate, I signed up for an interview with a department store called Abraham and Strauss is now a division of Federated, uh, which was a division of Federated, now a division of Macy's. I uh, had no intention of uh, getting involved in retail. I had no idea what retail was about. Uh, the interviewer uh, spotted that right out of the gate and said, hey, why are you here? I didn't want to blow the whistle on my classmate who I had signed up for so he wouldn't be canceled and said I was practicing. And he said, okay, well, let's practice. And 45 minutes later, he offered me a job starting the following Monday as wow. a, uh, a late hire to their last-minute executive training squad. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is October 71. So I, I had no job. I was broke. I was interviewing, but but had nothing other than that going on. And so I, I showed up. And uh, three months later in January, they offered me a job a real job after I came off the training squad. There were 37 of us on the training squad. Three of us made it to January. The the balance had either been fired or had quit. Um, I thought it was a wild opportunity. And so Mm -hmm. when they offered me an assistant buyer's job, I took it. My family and friends wanted to conduct an exorcism because here's this engineering (laughs) kid who's going to work for a department store. I mean, you know, what's wrong with him? But in any event, uh, you know, 30 plus years later, uh, it's been a hell of a ride. Uh, my last retail job was chairman CEO of Sears Canada. And prior to that, I had been the president of Softlines and uh, chief marketing officer of Sears Roebuck. So having gone from Abraham and Strauss to the Gap to Lord and Taylor to Mervyn's back to Federated at uh, Goldsmiths, a division based in Memphis, and then to uh, Lazarus, a division based in the Midwest as chairman, CEO, then CEO of Bradley's, and then um, uh, Chicago as CMO and president of Softlines. Since leaving Sears Canada, I've been consulting and teaching at the Columbia Business School, which has become something of a second career. Mm-hmm. which beats trying to learn how to play golf. <laughs> so uh, at least when, for did, me. when did you start with um, Sears? So I, I joined Sears Roebuck in Chicago in early 1998. Okay. Uh, the company had uh, been at one point in the late 80s, the largest retailer in the world. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it had fallen flat on its face, having uh, suffered from an enormous amount of inbred management. It had also gone off on a tangent, having invested uh, billions of dollars in financial services. The Discover Card, Dean Witter, uh, Investment Services, Caldwell Banker Real Estate, and Allstate Insurance. And it had taken its eye off its, uh, its core business, which was retail. Um, a early on activist uh, ran an ad in the Wall Street Journal in which under the heading or over the heading or over a picture of the board of directors, uh, he had a headline written, which was something like uh, uh, unproductive asset. He was calling the board out for basically not doing their duty to ensure that the business be managed successfully. Mm -hmm. uh, the board got the message. They were embarrassed by that. Um, this is before there were activists every day of the week clamoring for someone's head. And they went outside and hired Arthur Martinez to become the only CEO who would ever join Sears from the outside, the only senior executive, frankly, who would ever join Sears from the outside. Uh, he turned the company uh, around. Uh, the company took off like a rocket ship from 92 to 96. 97, the turnaround kind of got stuck. Too many people celebrating too much success. Um, I joined in 98. The mandate that I had was, uh, you know, get us back on, help get us back on track both as the uh, chief marketer and as uh, one of the two lead merchants. And I did that. I mean, I contributed toward that. Mm -hmm. So 99, 2000 were the best years in the company's history. Uh, Martin is unfortunately at the end of 2000 retired. Uh, he'd been at the company uh, since 92. He was turning 60. His dad had died at the age of 60. He didn't want to uh, die in this chair. And unfortunately, the board uh, appointed someone from the company who turned out to be a ringer. Uh, his name was Alan Lacey. He had been the uh, chief financial officer and then the head of Sears Roebuck's credit. Uh, he was a financial guy masquerading as someone who reportedly had merchandising skills, which he did not. Um, he got into a fight with the Sears Canada CEO. Sears Canada was a um, independent company in, uh, in Toronto whose 51% shareholder was Sears Roebuck. And so it was a public company in, in Canada, but its principal shareholder was its U.S. Uh, parent. Uh, Lacey got into a fight with the uh, Sears Canada CEO who, pro who promptly quit. And uh, he asked me if I would take the job up there. I was fine with that because I was never going to stick around in Chicago, having worked with Alan and having come to the realization that he was not going to be successful. So, and, what was... uh, so that, that's how I joined Sears Roebuck. Mm -hmm. And that's how I wound up uh, as the CEO of Sears Canada. And what was Sears Canada like um, at that point around 2000, turn of the century? I know that they had around that time, basically taken over um, Eaton's, which was a well-known Canadian uh, company. 
That's right. Sears Canada was founded in the early 1950s as a joint venture between Sears, Roebuck in the US and Simpsons, a Canadian department store. Sears Canada in 2001, which is when I joined them, was doing a little less than $7 billion, uh, profitable running a business that was a lot like Sears Roebuck on the hardline side and a lot like Macy's on the softline side. Mm -hmm. So it was much more fashionable and upscale on the apparel and accessories um, side, but, but just like Sears with regard to appliances, hardware, tools, things of that sort. Uh, Sears Canada was one of the largest retailers in Canada. It had a credit business, which was extraordinarily powerful and intrusive. It was in businesses uh, far broader than the U.S. business. It was in the long distance telephone business, the travel business. It was in the home improvement business. And of course, like its U.S. parent, it serviced all the appliances it sold. Um, and it, and it, you know, it was really an icon in the Canadian retail marketplace. It had, as you pointed out, made an investment in a bankrupt Eaton's, which was a moderate to upscale department store that had fallen on hard times. And it had almost train wrecked itself in trying to make sense of that acquisition. My predecessor who either was fired or quit had indulged in a, um, uh, an extraordinary uh, strategy of renovation across Canada. He, he took seven overlarge Eaton stores, mostly in downtowns, and renovated them. He spent $150 million more than he had a budget for. And um, unfortunately, there was no there there. There was lots of flash, lots of PR, lots of expectation, but there was no differentiation by way of strategy between Sears Canada and a New Eaton's. Uh, that's the, uh, the pond that I jumped into. My role upon arrival, because I had quite a bit of involvement with the Canadians, as I had been responsible for all of Sears Roebuck's worldwide private label, including the merchandise that Sears Canada used. And uh, uh, was also being lobbied by them to give them support for their Eaton's launch. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a fair amount of insight into the train wreck that they were about to encounter. And when I went up there, I more or less said to the team, which had been very successful for you know six, seven years until this interlude, uh, we know how to run a successful business. Let's get back to our knitting. Let's, let's set this distraction and disruption aside because it's killing the core business. And of course, <clears throat> a year later, I turned those seven Eaton stores into Sears because there was no viable pathway to make sense of seven stores coast to coast across Canada uh, operating a separate strategy unto itself. It's a shame, could have worked, but uh, too much money had been spent and there would have been too much ongoing disruption. So Sears Canada was um, a captive of Sears Roebuck. It benefited from its ability to use the Sears Roebuck brands, Kenmore Craftsman Die Hard. Um, it 
didn't need the financial backing of Sears Roebuck. It was cash flow positive. It had no debt. Um, um, it didn't require any financial or operational support from the US. Uh, it had long ago learned how to successfully and profitably stand on its own two feet. Um, the conundrum being that it was tethered to Sears Roebuck because Roebuck owned 51% of its stock. So Lacey's with it. Lacey was in the job for five years. Uh, I knew he had no idea what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just as happy as I could be to be away from Chicago, uh, frankly and watched with uh, no surprise that he started to make decisions that were certainly decisions I never would have made. And then he started to make decisions in which he started to demand that I follow suit. Mm. So for example, uh, Sears Roebuck had a 30 plus billion dollar credit card portfolio. It created a Sears credit card in the early fifties following World War II, which was an extraordinarily smart move because it empowered millions of young families forming uh, households, uh, moving out into newly formed suburbs from the cities and from rural communities who otherwise never would have been able to uh, come up with enough cash to buy a refrigerator or a washing machine or furniture or apparel for their kids, that sort of thing. Uh, the portfolio was over $30 billion. And Lacey um, saw to it to create a Sears MasterCard, which was a smart move because uh, customers no longer were in love with having a wallet full of store cards. They were starting to uh, support multi-purpose cards. In other words, a Sears MasterCard or Bloomingdale's Visa, that sort of thing. And so Sears Roebuck formed a U.S. bank, which they had to do to satisfy the, uh, the feds uh, to be a credit card issuer. But then they did something. And, and by the way, in Canada, we started to do the same thing for the same reason. We, we, we created a, uh, a Sears Canada MasterCard uh, product. We had to spend a year creating a national bank in Canada. Uh, the uh, requirements in Canada were actually more stringent than they were in the U.S. But having said that, I had a very experienced, very successful credit card team. And uh, they were very careful about how we launched that new card. Unlike Lacey, who got careless, reckless, and if not downright stupid. So, for example, he had hundreds of thousands of newly minted Sears MasterCards mailed to Sears credit card holders with a letter which informed them that this was now their new Sears card and that their original Sears card account was being transferred over and therefore canceled. Uh, an enormous number of customers were infuriated by that. They were not given a choice. They were not given advance notice. They were just basically uh, told by virtue of a credit card in their mailbox that this is your new Sears card. Um, when Lacey's was, Lacey was challenged by this, this is just before I went up to Canada, he said, well, these are not uh, active customers, so why should they care? 
And I may have the one who pointed out that in their minds, they were absolutely active customers because they were customers who bought appliances from Sears. And because Lacey had no idea what he was doing, he didn't realize that customers buy appliances every eight plus years. Customers buy appliances when they move. When they move into a new apartment, they move into a new house. They think of themselves as active customers because they're putting a big ticket item on their card. They were infuriated by this change in status, which gave them lots more features and benefits and convenience, but they weren't apprised of that in that way. And then he did something that he did while I was in Canada, which was the linchpin of the Sears Roebuck credit business. The credit operation began to issue cash advance privileges to these newly minted Sears MasterCard holders. My Canadian credit executives, when we created the strategy in Canada, presented to me the view that we would wait several years before we issued out cash advance privileges. We would want to see what Sears Canada credit customers with this newly minted MasterCard, uh, we wanted to see what their behavior would be to ensure that we wouldn't encounter any kind of undue bad debt or um, slow pay delinquency experiences. They were very schooled in the risk profile you get into when you're running large credit operations. The Sears Canada portfolio was over $6 billion, so it was proportionally bigger than the US. Mm -hmm. Well, those hundreds of thousands of new customers in the US who got immediate cash advance privileges of 1500 bucks, many of them raced to their ATM, pulled the cash out, and that's it. They, they didn't pay any of their bills. In many cases, they were new Sears Roebuck credit card customers. And Lacey had a crisis on his hands because his credit division had not provided appropriate risk provisions for this emerging no-pay, slow-pay experience that they were encountering. To make a very long story short, he had a fire sale the portfolio to Citicorp because the banking community in the U.S. was no longer willing to securitize his portfolios. Securitization is when uh, uh, approximately every year, a credit card issuer sells the receivables to banks who take on the uh, some of the risk, if not all of the risk, and pay the host more or less a fee for that. It's a way of uh, managing your balance sheet. And whereas... In Canada, we had banks who were always who were mad at us because we wouldn't give them a big enough tranche of securitization. They didn't want any part of the U.S. Uh, portfolio because of its emerging bad debt experience. Mm -hmm. So Lacey was forced to uh, fire sale the Citicard, the, the, his portfolio to Citicard, and he tried to he tried to do a deal where he. He tried to combine the deal with the Canadian portfolio, which would have given him a better outcome since the Canadian portfolio was held in much higher 
esteemed by the banking community. It was viewed as much more profitable. Uh, I'm the CEO of a public company in Canada. I have a major shareholder, but I'm also responsible for all shareholders, and I refuse to play because it's not in the best interest of the company at large. Uh, lots of fighting about that. I stuck to my guns. Mm -hmm. He couldn't do anything about it uh, uh, because the case that I made to my board, which included him, but which I made to my board was it makes no sense for us to separate our very profitable, very successful, very large credit portfolio, which has created over 50 years this extraordinarily intimate connection with customers. So that was one big fight. The second one centered around his creation of a new strategy in the US called Sears Grand, which was to be a Sears Roebuck located in a power center rather than anchored to a mall, which would uh, carry food and which would look to be competitive with Walmart, a Walmart superstore or supercenter and uh, Target, mm -hmm. both of which were heavily and are now, as you know, heavily uh, invested in food. And so he opened up two prototypes, uh, one in Salt Lake City, a suburb of Salt Lake City, and one in a suburb of Chicago. It was in, I think, Waukegan. And he wanted me to open one in Canada because that would enable him to uh, validate the, in his view, the success of the strategy. Well, there was, there was, there was almost complete transparency between the US and Canada with, which, which, with regard to data. We had standalone systems, but complete commonality. And so we could, examine the performance of these two prototypes as if we were based in Chicago. Um, and they were not successful, despite the fact that he was touting their success to his board. What do I mean by that? Well, one of these stores was going to annualize at $13 million a year, but was 200,000 square feet, which is something that doesn't compute. Now, prototypes often are are you know real study in patience they don't they don't they rarely are successful right out of the gate but but in investigating these two prototypes and in visiting them and in studying them uh, I became completely convinced that this was going to be a catastrophe and I'll give you some examples but but while this was going on Lacey bought from newly emergent from bankruptcy, Kmart, 51 stores across the United States with which to roll out Sears Grant. And he paid $605 million in cash for those stores. So my merchant team is studying Sears Grant very, very carefully. We're visiting the stores. And my real estate team in Canada is studying this real estate deal. And they come back to me with the view that half of these 51 stores are dogs. And 605 million is a ridiculous amount of money to spend on them. Well, fast forward, and I'll go back to Sears Grand. Eddie Lampert, who took control of Kmart, took him out of bankruptcy because he bought enough of the 
company's debt to be able to do that, uh, had been a 14% investor in Sears Roebuck stock and behind the scenes did a deal with Lacey on this real estate. And when the, when the, when the investment community got wind of it or discovered it, they did the math, 51 stores, 605 million. That means 2,200 stores are worth gazillions of dollars. And the Kmart stock went right up into the sky because the real estate valuation appeared to be incredible. And what did Lampert do? He turned around with that cash and that inflated stock price, and he basically bought Sears Roebuck. Back to Sears Grant. I'll give you an example of why I knew this was stupidity personified. The store in Salt Lake City was in a power center anchored by Walmart. Uh, the store, you would have thought, would have been a showcase for the brand equities that Sears held that differentiated it from everyone else, notably Kenmore, Craftsman, and Die Hard. The Kenmore and Craftsman presentation was just simply in the normal course. There was nothing special about it. The linchpin for failure was the, the Sears Grand Store had a tiny little kid's department. Now, I had been chief merchant at Mervyn's out west. Mervyn's had lots of stores in Utah, among other states. If you know anything about Utah, Salt Lake in particular, you know that its demographics skew very young mm -hmm. uh, with families with lots of kids, mm -hmm. lots of kids. It's, it's unique, maybe a, a close second in, in demographic similarity would be Southern California and Hispanic communities where there are young families with lots of kids. But here's Sears with this tiny little kids department in a market that's all about kids. Uh, Lacey had no idea what he was doing. I don't know who put the store, store together for him, but they had no idea what they were doing. And of course, the store was not doing a lot of business. And as for food, when I asked the store manager, how's food going? You know, how's it going? You know, what's happening? He pointed out that every week they have to basically trash most of the food because nobody's buying the food. It wasn't fresh food. It was mostly refrigerated and packaged stuff. But but. They weren't selling food because they were doing business in the shadow of a Walmart super center. Okay. Why would you buy food at a Sears? Okay. So, so, so I said to Lacey, look, there's no way we're opening up a Sears brand in Canada. And oh, by the way, are you crazy? <laughs> you know, uh, I didn't have, I mean, I, I wasn't an adversary of his in Chicago. I pointed out that he did something stupid with his credit uh, rollout, but I didn't rub his nose in it. I, I stayed away from him in Canada for as long as I could. But but, but the, in the summer of 2004, a business uh, writer, a, a journalist for the Chicago Trib named, I think, Jim Kirk, who I'd never met and I'd never talked to, wrote a column in which he said, Sears Roebuck is failing, Sears Canada is doing well, Lacey has no idea what he's doing, maybe the board should get Cohen to come down and take over the U.S. operation. Mm -hmm. uh, Lacey went crazy, 
called an emergency board meeting in Canada, basically threatened my board with uh, dismissal, which is something he could do, theoretically. And so that's how he left Sears Canada. Um, he stayed on for another six, eight months as Lampert took over the, the entire business. Lampert installed a guy from Kentucky Fried Chicken to run the thing and put a former Sears Roebuck CFO, a guy named Julian Day, in charge of Kmart. Someone who, by the way, Lacey had fired. Okay. <laughs> this is a bad soap opera. Uh, Julian Day set aside, set, set to work cutting the heart out of Kmart, which was pretty much moribund at best, mm -hmm. uh, having been on its last legs long before it went into Chapter 11. And, and purportedly, Lacey, or rather Lampert, had all sorts of fanciful notions about how he was going to run Sears Roebuck, um, none of which, by the way, made any sense, but he knew better because he was the smartest guy in the room. And of course, after a year or two of the street proclaiming him to be the, the next Warren Buffett because of the extraordinary ramp up in profitability of Sears Roebuck, the streets realized that it all came from expense cuts. Uh, so you look like a genius when you cut all your capex out and you kill your operating expenses for a little while. And then he started to essentially liquidate the business by this selling is... off its best real estate, uh, creating these cockamamie deals where he would he would lend the company money collateralized against real estate. He he sold off an enormous tranche of. Uh, really prime real estate into a rate called Saratosh, mm -hmm. uh, which which gave Sears cash, which basically enabled Sears to stay upright. Uh, but now Sears had to pay rent into Saratosh. And who's the principal shareholder of Saratosh? Eddie Lampert. So this is something that I've always had a question. Is it, was this intent basically just to liquidate the business? So it's, I mean, was that the plan? I think the plan was to liquidate Kmart. I think the plan at the very outset was to run Sears Roebuck. Mm -hmm. I think that plan didn't make it past the first year, year and a half, if it, if it, if it was even that uh, well-rooted. Because I think Lampert realized almost at the very outset, if not at the very outset, that he had no idea how to do this and he didn't want to try because he never installed anybody in the business who had any idea how to run the business. Lacey certainly had no clue. The Kentucky Fried Chicken guy was well-regarded in the food business. He had no idea what to do. There were never any executives either at the top or senior level in the company who had any standing. They were all uh, puppets who basically did Lampert's bidding. Was that uh, the same exactly. people on the board as well? Yeah, well, the boards were all puppets. Okay. The boards were all people who were either too stupid to know better or were installed by Lampert and did exactly what he more or less told them to do. One of whom, by the way, from the very outset, was his college roommate from Yale, 
none other than Steve Mnuchin, who became mm -hmm. the Treasury Secretary, uh, who, who, you know, whose integrity is now under an emerging cloud, as if he ever had any to begin with, because he basically, along with his other board members, rubber stamped everything that Lampert was doing. Uh, so the board, which theoretically is in charge of managing the fiduciary behavior of the company on behalf of all of its stakeholders, not only its shareholders, but its associates and customers, pandered to Lampert's every whim. And he, by the way, did that he did exactly that in Canada. He mm -hmm. put, he put uh, inexperienced and incompetent people in the corner suite and installed board members who worked for him or were Canadians who had no idea what they were doing and did what he told them to do. And so he ran both businesses into the ground. And that's, you know, something I started publicly speaking about many, many years ago and was written off by some as, you know, sour grapes. He's just disappointed and unhappy and angry. Yeah, I was all of that, but I was speaking from the belief that I had that this was going to be a uh, apocryphal collapse. And I don't want to sound like I told you so, but I told you so. And it's not because I'm that smart. It's because I have a tremendous amount of time and experience in the business, and I'm not afraid of Eddie Lampert. A lot of people had the same view that I had, but didn't see fit to speak up because of their view of the risk it might uh, engender. And I should point out that when I left Canada, Lampert had taken over the entire company. Uh, he had attempted to renege on my employment contract, hmm. which was written in explicit terms by a world-class attorney who pointed out to me when I went up to Canada that I was going to be conflicted out at some point very likely because I would have complete responsibility to the Canadian shareholder while I would have to deal with my 51% U.S. shareholder, and he knew enough about Lacey to say it's not going to be a marriage made in heaven. You're going to want to kill him. He's going to want to kill you. If you follow his lead, you're going to wind up getting into terrible trouble because – He's troubled. He knew a little bit more about Lacey than I did. In any event, I had a contract which was bulletproof. And after a year of ditzing around, a lot of which, by the way, was centered around tax liabilities, because when you work in Canada at a certain income level, you're liable to pay Canadian taxes, while at the same time, you're liable for U.S. taxes. And any reasonable employment arrangement protects you from, indemnifies you from double jeopardy, meaning the parent has to make you whole. Well, after a year of ditzing around and uh, my dealing with the Canadian tax authorities who don't care what the deal is, they just want their money, I had to sue Sears Holdings mm -hmm. in an Illinois state court. And I'm not afraid of Lampert, and I know what the contract says, and I know that I'm dealing with someone with an infinite legal budget. But after a year, a state judge in Illinois grants me a uh, summary judgment, which basically says to Sears Holdings, 
his contract is written in English. The the arithmetic is, you know, third grade. It's absolutely clear what you're required to do. Just do it. And she orders the company to do it. Rather than do it, they appeal. They, they, they take it into an appellate court in Illinois. And a year later, this is year two, the appellate court throws their appeal out because these actions take forever. The appellate court, a tripartite appellate court, rules to say the appeal is, is bullshit and sends it back to the original trial judge for adjudication. And she tells them to honor her original judgment. And in the 364th day of the third year, when I'm now about to not only seek redress for what is owed me, but now I'm looking for damages because in a civil proceeding, you can't reach for damages until a certain amount of proceedings have taken place. And so now I'm looking to create a nuclear war, looking for a gazillion dollars worth of damages. And I'm harmed because I've got the Canadians looking for money and the U.S. feds looking for money. And anyway, make a long story short, in this 364th day, when I'm about to go back into court, Sears uh, caves in and settles. This is how Eddie Lampert rolls. This is the way he plays. And I wasn't, you know, this, this, this is the way lots of people were treated by Eddie Lampert, lots of companies. This is the way this, this guy is a Donald Trump personified in his behavior. And um, so to get back to the present, uh, Kmart's got what, three stores left? Sears has got maybe 20 left. The only reason there are any left is because Lampert's still got some uh, net operating losses that he can yet harvest. And a curious thing happened when this thing went into bankruptcy. The company filed bankruptcy in October, I think, of 18. Yep, 2018. And and retailers never file bankruptcy in October. They file bankruptcy in January. They file bankruptcy in January when they've harvested all of the holiday sales. They have all of that cash in hand and they have failed to pay their bills. So they have leverage going into bankruptcy. They've got a fair amount of liquidity, even though they're filing bankruptcy and they owe a lot of money, but they go into court with chips in hand. When you file in October, you don't have the holiday receipts in hand. He had a file because there was 175 million. I'm not sure that's the exact number, but it was a substantial note due that he intended to pay off using a special dividend, which is something he'd been doing continuously by basically telling the board, issue a special dividend or um, uh, pay me back for one of these collateralized stores. And the board finally, the U.S. board finally woke up and realized that if they continued to do his bidding, they personally were going to be in legal jeopardy. Someone clued them in, woke them up, and so they refused to authorize the note. And Lampert didn't want to write a check, so he put the company into a loan. Well, it goes through a, a, a proceeding 
And in the bankruptcy court uh, in uh, Westchester County in New York, uh, by the way, the company cagely got the bankruptcy proceeding placed in that uh, venue because there's some flexibility that a company filing for bankruptcy has in choosing what court they might get. Well, in, in Westchester County, there's one bankruptcy judge in the Southern District in the city. There's a dozen or more of them, and they get selected randomly. Well, here's this one guy. He's the bankruptcy judge. His name is is Robert Drain, and he is the uh, judge who presides over the bankruptcy. There's two um, warring sides in the bankruptcy. There's the creditors who will coalesce around a desire to liquidate the company to be able to uh, harvest whatever cash they can get from what's left to pay off creditors. And there's Lampert, who presents to the court a proposal to buy the company out of bankruptcy and create a new company, which he claims will protect tens of thousands of jobs. Which didn't happen. Well, he convinces the judge that he's the better outcome. The judge is an idiot. The judge is also the guy who gave the... Uh, the Sacketts, a multi-billion dollar free pass on the oxycodone litigation, okay? The judge is hoodwinked. He doesn't want a headline with his name on it, uh, which basically says Judge Drain approves liquidation and 40,000 people are now out of work. Um, so he gives Lampert the right to buy the company out of bankruptcy. It's been a couple of years now, and the bankruptcy officially is, then the company is still officially in bankruptcy. Because Lampert never wrote the $47 million check that was negotiated as a basis of him getting possession of the company. I don't know if it was $47 million, but it's a big number. He never paid it. And so Drain, who's now about to retire, has appointed three mediators to sort this out. Of course, the creditors having been thwarted in their attempt to liquidate the company, are now seeking billions of dollars of recourse from Lampert in a form of, uh, um, in, a, in a process in bankruptcy that's called, um, let me think of the words, uh, fraudulent conveyance, which is a process whereby creditors claim that money's paid by the company before it filed bankruptcy which in the case of Lampert is billions of dollars in uh, special dividends. Uh, and the transaction in which company assets were sold to Seritage, they're claiming that that money was fraudulently conveyed and therefore should be clawed back. So there's three Kmarts left. There's 22 series or something like that. By year end, there likely will be zero. The company has essentially disappeared. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, people often ask, did Lampert come out in all of this? My guess is not. We'll never really know. You have to really understand the, uh, the, the math behind um, uh, the toing and froing of all these sums of money and the opportunity costs and losses that he's encountered and has uh, created for himself. One but of the, here's, 
here's the largest retailer in the world. Mm -hmm. Certainly, even with a wounded Kmart, one of the largest in the world. Uh, a company in the case of Sears Roebuck, which was the Amazon of its day, which should have been an extraordinarily important player in e-commerce mm -hmm. and started to emerge in e-commerce, except that Lacey was in charge of it and he had no idea what he was doing. And when he became CEO, he had no idea what he was doing. And so it's gone. It's toast. And hundreds of thousands of people have lost their jobs in the U.S. and Canada. And an untold multiple of those people with regard to their households, their friends and family, vendors, all toast as a result of the disgusting behavior of Eddie Lampert and his cohorts who've basically uh, enabled this whole thing. One of the questions that I've always had is the role of the media in all of this. Um, now, business media has been following this and they've, they will pretty much kind of share the story, but I've never, it doesn't seem like with the exception of maybe the, the CBC, you haven't really heard national media really take on this story of what was going on, especially um, Lampert's incompetence. Why do you think that was? Because they're afraid of Lampert, because Lampert had always had very high power, ultra ag aggressive PR people who were all over the media. If anybody were to be so, to have the temerity to write any kind of negative story. Don't forget, when he first took this whole thing over, he was being touted as the next Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. So the media was a bit embarrassed to now start revealing the fact that he was no Warren Buffett. Now, I started making comments, very pointed negative comments about Lampert and Sears by name and Lacey on CNN, CNBC, um, CBC, uh, and in print, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And every time I either appeared or was quoted, Lampert's minions would attack the media, demanding retraction, demanding uh, that they never talk to me again, making all sorts of threats. And, you know, the media is, the media is caught between a rock and a hard place, okay? Um, I said on air, hey, Lampert, you wanna argue the point? Sit next to me at the podium and let's talk about why I think you're a fucking uh, crook. Uh, he obviously and none of his minions would ever dare to do that. But they made a point of harassing uh, the media. Uh, by by getting to Michael Bloomberg, who got to his senior editor at Business Week. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure this is what happened because because after uh, giving them a lengthy interview, which they sought from me, they demanded or they demand they informed me that they were going to put a a uh, sort of a counter story in the interview, and I said, no way, I won't participate in that. You know, 
they got trapped because in the same week they ran the print interview, they invited me to participate on Bloomberg TV. And they couldn't muzzle me on television. So the media, look, the media is trapped. And, and I don't want to describe the media as, as, I don't want to paint the media with one broad brush because that's not fair or appropriate. But look at how difficult the media, broadly speaking, has had describing what's gone on over the last five, six years with regard to Trump. I mean, the media should have shut him down before he even ran for president. Now, he's from New York. I'm from New York. Mm -hmm. He's widely been, he's been widely known in New York as a crook forever. His father was widely regarded as a um, an aggressive bigot and a crook. You know, it was no secret in New York that if you were black, there was no way you were ever going to rent an apartment in a Trump-owned uh, housing development. You could stand on your head. You'd never get a lease. Mm -hmm. Not a secret. Okay. Now, he was ultimately nailed. He, he, he claims he never admitted guilt, and they signed a Nolo Contandra. But in New York, a New Yorker, a resident of Queens or Brooklyn, would readily tell a friend or family member, if they were black, don't bother. You're not going to get a lease. <laughs> you know, this was not, this was no, this was not a secret. And yet the media treated him, and to some degree, still treats him, if you're talking about Fox, with kid gloves. So how did Lampert get away with it? He's a billionaire who'd been touted as the next Warren Buffett. And he's reclusive. He's secretive, and he hires these uh, mad dogs who go after the media with a whole manner of threats and all sorts of stuff. And here's me basically saying, hey, the guy's a crook. I've described him, I've described him as um, – what were the words I used at one point, which I'm told he went ballistic over? He's either delusional – or he's, um, I use three words, and it's been a while. I said he's either dishonest, delusional, or something else. Hmm. And when someone said, aren't you worried that he's going to come after you? I said, well, he can't do anything to me. Mm -hmm. Bring it. And by the way, he had to pay my legal fees for those three years of litigation, which was almost 600000 bucks. So people like him get away with things. And I'll say one more thing, and then I'll be quiet. It takes talented leadership and the enormous devotion and effort of enormous numbers of people to create a successful business, whether you're talking about retail or doesn't matter. It takes enormous devotion to the task at hand over many years to create a successful enterprise. It only takes a Lampert with a handful of people like Alan Lacey and uh, Steve Mnuchin to break the glass from which it can never be 
put back together. And we see that in businesses all across the spectrum of enterprise. Mm -hmm. What do you think has been the result of Lampert's leadership? I mean, you, you've talked, you know, you hear a lot about how malls are kind of empty or dealing with these large spaces, but it, there seems to also have been a human toll to this as well um, that we don't always hear about. Well, the mall, the Great American Shopping Mall, which, by the way, was in no small measure spawned by the investment that Sears Roebuck made in the 50s and 60s through a subsidiary, a wholly owned subsidiary, real estate, real estate subsidiary called Hallmark, in, in which Hallmark bought hundreds of locations throughout the United States, which became the footprint for the Great American Shopping Mall, which is why so many of those Sears stores were in the catbird seat in the premier location in the mall. Mm -hmm. You know, Sears was the original, one of, if not the original prime mover, because back in the day, those leaders realized that this migration out of the inner, inner city and in outboard into newly formed suburbs and this migration inboard from rural communities into these newly formed suburbs was going to create a marketplace. And then, of course, Eisenhower invested in the interstate highway system, which acted as the, 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 the enabler, because these malls were built at the foot of the exit and entrance ramps, or the exit ramps of these interstate highways. So, so Sears was a prime mover and was a principal tenant in almost a thousand of these malls. Mm -hmm. The mall, the classic Great American Mall, has a trading radius of typically seven miles. That's a generalization. So it draws customers from a radius of seven miles. And it also employs most of its employees from that same seven mile radius. When the mall starts to shut down or actually goes out of business, an enormous number of people who have seen the mall as both their shopping center and their employer are in a world of hurt because many of them are homemakers who have taken advantage of the flexibility of mall employment scheduling. Malls are open 77 hours a week. So they're working part-time or full-time on, on, on and off shift. And so they're able to take their kids to school, pick their kids up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly they're out of work. And alternative employment is in a Amazon distribution center that's 30 miles away. And pay that's an lives. eight. That's that. That's it. Or if it doesn't pay less, it may pay more. But it's 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 an eight-hour shift. Mm -hmm. It's not a part-time shift, and it's an eight-hour on your feet, no fooling. The Amazon distribution center is a production shop, so you don't get to stand around and chit-chat with your friends while you wait for a customer to show up. So this has created it's created this tremendous crisis locally in hundreds of places throughout the United States, the crisis is still rolling, where the employment base has disappeared. You know, it's tough. Mm -hmm. um, this is what e-commerce has wrought, hand in glove with the fact that the real estate community overplayed its hand. 
you know, they built too many malls. The first mall in the community was wildly successful. The department store moved from downtown. These new specialty stores occupied the concourses between the food court and the anchors. Customers loved it because it was near their, their homes. Uh, and so they built a second mall in the community, and that was wildly successful, you know, on the other side of the interstate or a couple of miles down the road. And then they built a third one, and that was wildly successful. Then they built a fourth one, and it took some business away from the first three, but it was still successful. Then they built a fifth one, and the first one started to die. And the first one in some communities was now on the wrong side of the tracks because as the suburban community evolved, what was the place to live and work and shop was no longer the place to live and work and shop. It had moved across town. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why so many of these original malls started to die. And then e-commerce, of course, has siphoned off an enormous percentage of the business. So a customer who had always been handcuffed to their local mall, which might have been a good-looking mall, might have been a crappy mall, might have had an exciting Macy's to shop in, it might have had a, a dump. It's where they had to shop. They didn't have to, but it's where they shopped. They were head, They were handcuffed. Now they've got an alternative. It's called e-commerce. They can shop. They can browse from anywhere in the world. They can shop from anywhere to, they can shop with anyone in the world and they can do it from their living room in their pajamas or they can go to the mall, but they don't have to. Hmm. And they love it. Why would they not love it? What do you think has been the loss of, of um, the Sears? What does that meant for consumers? Um, there was one time, I think maybe I, in an interview you did, that at one point, Kenmore had about 40% of the market, which was astounding. But by having grown up with Kenmore and, and purchased them myself, I can understand that. But has the consumer lost something with the demise of Sears? Well, uh, the U.S. Sears had a 40% share in appliances, and the Canadians had like 38% share. Um, and Kenmore was, in both cases, the largest component of the business. Kenmore, Kenmore was the be-all, end-all in appliances, particularly refrigeration, washer, dryer, dishwasher. It represented enormous value at opening price and enormous appeal at the high end because it had all the bells and whistles of new technology because Kenmore was a force of nature in the appliance industry. Uh, It was a cradle to grave brand, which is to say you bought a Kenmore washing machine and you could, uh, uh, you got a great warranty and you could buy an extended warranty and you keep that washer dryer running for the rest of your life if you wanted to because there would always be a Sears service person who would always have parts and would promptly fix your washer if it broke down. Promptly, efficiently, and cost-effectively, you know? Uh, Which is why millions and millions of households relied on Kenmore. They loved it. Why wouldn't they? Mm -hmm. Same thing with Craftsman Tools. Craftsman had a lifetime guarantee. If you ever broke the wrench, you just brought it into the store, they gave you a new one. 
they they didn't care that you did something to the wrench that no one should have ever done to the wrench. They just gave you a new one. It was part of the it was part of the relationship. Okay, so so what's happened? Well, well, customers can still buy washing machines. It's not as easy, as convenient, or as um, uh, confidence inspiring if you buy a washing machine from Home Depot or Best Buy or even Costco because you don't have this overarching umbrella of integrity and surety. So the consumer, the consumer is still able to service their needs, but not as efficiently as they had been. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, over time, um, the high integrity retailers like Costco have built an increasingly large and high integrity appliance business. Will they ever reach the, the pinnacle of, um, excellence that Sears and Sears Canada had? Oh, I don't know. Took, took those two companies decades to build that reliability. You know, the the um, the ability to service, the ability to deliver, install, and service appliances and do it profitably is something that requires an enormous network of people and facilities. People and facilities to deliver, install, and then service. It requires the ability to mount an inventory of parts go way back in time. So if you've got you know, a fitting on your 12-year-old washer that you're in love with, you don't want to replace, and it's corroded and it's got to be replaced, Sears had the part, mm-hmm. you know? And if God forbid they didn't, they gave you an incredible deal on a new one, on a new washer. But they almost always had the part. I visited the, the part depots in Canada. I mean, you know, I had people who were proud to tell you that there wasn't a washer that anybody was using that they couldn't see fit to have fixed. You know, I mean, I mean, this was a heritage of excellence that took decades to build. Lacey started to cut the heart out of it and then Lampert killed it. By the way, I'll tell you another one more Lacey story. In the lower level of the main building in Hoffman Estates, which as you may know, is like a 2 million square foot white marble and glass monument to the original Sears management's lunacy. This is something Martin has inherited. Quite impressive. When I joined, I didn't think anything would ever impress me. I was gobsmacked by this place. But in any event, in the lower level of one of the main buildings was the Sears engineering and uh, uh, testing center. Uh, staffed by a whole team of engineers with all sorts of equipment. And their job was to uh, approve production plans for all Kenmore Craftsman and Die Hard products before they actually went into production. And then to sample test products across the whole house, including jeans and underwear. They tested everything Sears sold, especially products that Sears sold under its own label. And they and their requirements were far more stringent than in appliances, for example, than UL, under idle labs. Mm-hmm. So their requirements were always 
far more stringent. Well, Lacey, village idiot, looked at that cost center and decided that the $7 million that were on the company's P&L to support that engineering center was superfluous, and he killed it. He closed it. I'm in Canada, and we rely upon the Chicago-based engineering center to, to certify all the stuff we're selling in Canada. Have a separate Canadian certification, but it's the same standards. So I say to Lacey, are you kidding? Are you crazy? Why did you do that? Well, we don't need to spend that 7 million bucks. We can rely on Underwriter Labs. I'm now scrambling to find a replacement in Canada. Okay. Because we, we need to have something more than the Canadian Underwriter Labs. And then something happens. A, a whole line of gas stoves is deemed to be dangerous. It's got an underfooting, a, uh, the footing of the gas range. It's a whole line of ranges, but they have a common um, foundation, if you will. Uh, satisfies underwriter labs requirements, but just barely. And the class action suit is mounted because someone has apparently put a 50 pound turkey on the oven lid and the range has tipped over. And someone got injured, there was a fire, I don't know what happened. And Sears has to set up a $500 million liability for future accidents while at the same time they have to mount this gazillion dollar recall to have these ranges retrofitted so that they're safe. This is so Lacey could save $7 million a year. Hmm. This is the same stupidity that surrounds the uh, 737 MAX crisis, the same stupidity that surrounds the GM ignition uh, key assembly crisis, where a bean counter or bean counters look to save some money. It looks like it's impressive only to uh, create this enormous financial burden because of the stupidity of their actions. Well, that lab didn't let anything go into a store that wasn't tremendously examined and tested from chainsaws to uh, washing machines. And customers, whether they knew or, or had any specific knowledge for decades had come to rely on that surety, mm -hmm. you know? And it's disappeared. What's you know? the lesson, what do you think is a lesson to be learned here um, about business in America? Um, well, I don't know of, and I don't think anybody else knows of a better economic system than the one we have. Mm -hmm. It's imperfect, just like democracy is messy and imperfect. Uh, a capitalist economy, a capitalism-based economy is messy and imperfect. And there is no way to protect the body politic from excesses, lamperts of the world. 
there there are ongoing attempts, ever ongoing attempts to close the loopholes and create regulations and provisions when calamities occur that should not have occurred in hindsight. The Canadians, which never had a decent pension protection system, are now being lobbied to make up for the catastrophe that Sears Canadian employees have faced because their pensions have been wiped out. Unlike in the U.S., where most pensions are protected by the U.S. government. So, so it's, it's a, it's a work in progress that will never be complete. And there will always be people and groups who find ways to suborn the rules or create processes that take advantage that haven't been foreseen. At the end of the day, if you were the owner of an enterprise, as Lampert effectively became by being the lead shareholder, the fact that the enterprise is a public company is of no solace because the lead shareholder essentially owns it outright. If he or she has a board that is complicit and boards tend to be complicit, you know? Um, and so, It's the best system there is. I'm not here to suggest some other alternative. I'm here to suggest that because politics is imperfect and politicians are in some respects inherently dishonest, you know, what gets them to the table renders them uh, ineffective in some respects. Um, or disqualifies them. We're always going to be subject to the vagaries of these activities that are, uh, for most people, completely disruptive, disruptive and disruptive. Uh, Lampert should have been called out for what he was. I don't know that would have changed the, the direction of the tides. Um, Vendors who supported the company he was running should have found other places to sell their goods. You know, vendors would ask me whether they were clients, consulting clients, or just friends. Should I sell Sears? To which I said, not if you've got someplace else to sell your goods, because eventually he's going to stiff you. And he started to stiff people long before he went into 11. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, you, you, you lie down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. This mm-hmm. is, this is the way business runs. You know, you, you do business with someone who's not on the up and up. You're going to struggle at some point when they get the better of you. And that's what Lampert and Lampert's, the Lampert's of the world, like the Trumps of the world. That's how they play. He never paid those uh, Polish steel workers who, who put up the structure, the superstructure of Trump Tower. He stiffed them. <laughs> he got away with it. You know, he stiffed those uh, stupid investors who put billions of dollars into those casinos in Atlantic City. He stiffed those those gullible people who uh, signed up for Trump University. He got caught at that, but I don't know that those people were made whole. So it's an imperfect system. 
uh, caveat mTOR always reigns supreme, which is to say, the, the, let the buyer beware, let the investor beware. Mm-hmm. Uh, be careful who you rely upon. Um, it's the best you can do. Uh, you know, I, I, I now am at the podium in front of students every semester. These are masters and mistresses of the universe. They're, they're, they're uh, elites. They've typically been out in the workforce for a couple of years. They've made a lot of money. Now they're back in business school looking to make a lot more money. And I, I endlessly counsel them on paying an enormous amount of attention to what they're really doing. And I say to them, and this is advice I got from a, from a very early mentor at Abraham and Strauss, when you're in a discussion with a counterparty and you've been advised by the lawyers that what you're planning on doing is legal, before you sign your name, ask yourself the question, what would your mother think if she was sitting in the room listening to what you're about to do? Assuming your mother's not a criminal. Mm-hmm. And if your mother would have a bit of a problem, you might want to put the lawyer's opinion off to the side and not go for it. Common sense, good judgment always reigns supreme. It's something you can't teach. You can only make an appeal towards. Selling your best stores and claiming you're repositioning the business is a paradox that can't be explained, which is what Lampert was doing both in the U.S. and Canada. So when the final question is, at the end of the day, does Lampert then get to walk away from this? Oh, yeah. He's long ago put, I don't know this, but he's long ago put enough money in, in hefty bags in the backyard to uh, support his yacht and his jet and his palatial homes. You know, don't cry for uh, Eddie Lampert. He may not have as much money as he might have had if he had taken a different course. But, you know, when you reach a certain level of wealth, uh, it doesn't matter anymore, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how many multi-hundred foot yachts are you going to occupy? How many, how many, you know, G650s are you going to fly around on? How many homes are you going to? You know, I mean, at some point, uh, these guys are in it for bragging rights, I suppose, or whatever else motivates them. Um, he certainly isn't going to get accolades from the media for being the next Warren Buffett. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I, I um, One of the things that I remember in doing some of the research, I think shortly, maybe a year or two after he took um, over, the stock price for Sears was still around over $100 per share. Um, When it went for bankruptcy, it was at, I believe, 37 cents. Right. Well, um, he's taken billions and billions and billions of dollars in both the U.S. and Canada out in special dividends. Billions of dollars. Uh, and he's gotten away with it. 
And um, look, it is what it is. When the when the when the when the stories are all written, Lampert is not going to be uh, described as someone as a paragon of virtue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, doesn't help for those who have lost their jobs, but at least maybe history can at least render some type of a judgment. I agree. Well, thank you for taking the time. To, to chat with me. I think this was um, an important story for people to hear. Um, I do hope that they can kind of hear this story and see and maybe learn what was the true, what happened to kind of one of America's greatest retailers. And well, I was reticent to participate, and I think you now know why. I, yes, I do. Um, and all I can ask is that when you publish, send me a link. I definitely will. I will. Okay. All okay, right. Dennis, have a great day. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. the story kind of with an addendum uh maybe you've seen that recently in the spring there were a slate of stories about kmart um now as i said sears and kmart are in the same company in the 90s was kind of its peak it had maybe over 2400 stores um now it is down to its last three um that's it and the way that a lot of the stories that talk about the downfall of Kmart go about is basically Kmart didn't keep up with the times. Um, and you will see that over and over and over again throughout, um, throughout the media. That's kind of the story. And, um, but is that really the story? Now, that's not to say that Kmart especially was not in a a great place in the 1990s, especially around the turn of the last century. Um, it has started to lose some of its luster. But its downfall was not um, something that just happened. It, it's not because, like other businesses, you know, the stories that you hear that they do well and then they start to kind of decline. That wasn't the story. Um, one of the reasons that I focus on this so much, especially um, being that this is a religion uh, broadcast, is that I think that Christians especially need to be involved with issues such as uh, Kmart and Sears, because what's happened at these two chains, and not just these two chains, but throughout uh, the retail industry, wasn't related to a normal business cycle. This was not the free market acting here. If it was, then no one would care. Or, or if it was, I don't. I would not be so interested and animated about this interest. But 
as you heard from Mark and um, from others, this was part and parcel of a deliberate attempt to take money out of the business. It was a deliberate attempt to make Kmart and Sears uncompetitive, and that allowed for people to, like Eddie Lampert, to continue to just take more money out of these two firms. And he could continue to do that, basically, because in the minds of the media and in the larger public, both firms were past their prime, and frankly, they deserved their fate. But what the public and the media didn't know is that they were being set up for fools, because this allowed Lampert to shutter stores. It allowed him to leave hundreds of thousands of employees in both America and the United States and in Canada without good-paying jobs. As I said, this has happened not just in um, with Sears and Kmart, but it's happened over and over again in American retail. It's happened at firms like Shopco, the regional um, discount chain that went out of business in 2020, or Toys R Us. And these, what happened in both of these cases, investment firms, private equity came in, they loaded up the company with debt up to the point that basically the business becomes unstable and ends up liquidating. Thousands are left out without jobs. But the owners, the ones who ran up the debt, and in some ways, Eddie Lampert did the same thing at Sears, even though he's a hedge fund manager, they get to walk away scot-free. Back in the early 20th century, there was um, a journalist, Ida Tarbell, and she wrote a month-long expose on the Standard Oil Company and its leader, John D. Rockefeller. There had long been um, belief that Rockefeller kind of bent the rules sometimes in how he made his money and how Standard Oil became such a, a big force within um, society in American business. And so she wrote an expose in McClure's magazine. It lasted for well over a year. And she ends that series and laying out all of the sins that have been exposed. And she asks, what are we going to do about it? And I think that that's the question, especially that people of faith have to ask. What are we going to do about it? I'm not a socialist. I'm not someone that thinks that free market is bad. In fact, I think it is a good thing. I think it can do a lot of good. But people like Eddie Lampert must be held to account for their actions. When he took over um, and merged the two firms in, the, in 2005, in 2006, the common the um, stock for Sears Holdings, which was the company that came out of that merger, was still well over a hundred, I believe about one hundred and thirty dollars over um, per share. It was doing rather well, and I can speak from personal experience. Sears was doing well, well into the. Um, into even to the, the late aughts and early teens. 
I remember my husband and I bought appliances from Sears and they were still doing a pretty good job, even though their stores were not as great as they once were. They were still doing well. When Sears went declared when Sears Holdings declared bankruptcy in 2018, um, their stock had now was now worth about 37 cents. That is what Lampert did. He ruined two very well-known brands. He ended thousands of jobs, and especially in Canada, also really ended or at least harmed a lot of good pensions. And all around the country, there are empty buildings of former Sears and Kmart stores that communities are trying and struggling to find ways of doing something with the property. This has all been reaped. This has all been, has happened because of one person. And it's quite common. I know people say all the time that this is so-and-so is happening because of greed. And someone like myself, I usually roll my eyes because I don't think that every business decision, like what's happening now with gas, gas prices is because of greed. But what happened with Sears and Kmart was because of greed. There can be no doubt about that. And we have seen the result especially those of us who are followers of Christ, who believe in justice and who believe in um, in dignity, we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about it? Well, thank you again for watching, uh, for <laughs> listening to this episode of Church in Maine. Uh, just to let you know, we do have now a new website um, that is up with the new name, um, and that is going. It is churchandmain.org. So if you go to that website, you will find um, all of our episodes. We're going to be um, it's a, hopefully a little bit more tighter redesigned uh, than on the old website, and um, you can find some other things that will be of interest to you. So uh, again, you can find the website at churchandmain.org. That is it for this episode of um, Church in Maine. My name is Dennis Sanders. I'm your host. Take care, Godspeed, and we will see you very soon.